the Free Speech Coalition. Free Speech Coalition. The Free Speech Coalition. Free Speech Coalition. The Free Speech Coalition. The Free Speech Coalition. Podcast. Welcome to the Free Speech Coalition podcast. My name is Patrick Horsch, and today we have Professor James Flynn joining us from Otago. Professor Flynn is an expert in intelligence and is most famous for discovering the phenomenon known as the Flynn effect, the relationship between general intelligence and the ability to think in the abstract. Additionally, Professor Flynn teaches uh, political science and psychology at the University of Otago with a special focus on the application of moral philosophy and psychology in the political realm. Most recently, Professor Flynn authored a book on free speech where his United Kingdom publisher had canceled its contract with him out of fear that the book may be deemed a violation of the United Kingdom's hate speech laws. Ironically, the professor's book, In Defense of Free Speech, supports the principles of tolerance and respect for ideas that are desperately needed in our universities. We've decided to interview Professor Flynn twice. This first episode will be about his general applications of moral philosophy and psychology in the political realm, as well as his discovery of the Flynn effect and the effects uh, that uh, literature and politics play in the universities. Next time, when we have Professor Flynn on, we'll discuss his book, In Defense of Free Speech, and the cancellation from his United Kingdom's publishers in greater depth. Enjoy this part one. Welcome to the show, Professor Flynn. Um, You've had quite a career, both in academia and politics. Um, I I would first like to ask you then... um, if you could explain um, in detail uh, what schools of thought that you usually um, use in your analysis of politics, because your your bio on on uh, Otago University says that you use both moral uh, f- uh, philosophy and psychology um, and apply it and apply it to um, to your paper in politics. Well, I began with a very strong interest in the problem of ethical skepticism. That is, how you could use reason or to what extent you could use reason to justify your humane moral principles. Hmm. And that was my preoccupation until I discovered the Flynn effect. That is, uh, I was writing a book, How You Could Use Reason Against Racial Ideologies. And then I found to my surprise that there was a thinker well-educated and and many seemingly quite non-racist in his biases who thought that blacks were, on average, at Matthew, just on average, uh, that their genes for IQ were inferior to those of whites. Mm. Now, this actually reinforced two notions. Uh, I did eventually write a book called Race, IQ, and Jensen, and that, of course, was a book in psychology. But the way in which this was important was that I'd begun to realize as I conducted my career as a moral philosopher that moral philosophers are handicapped today. That is, in Plato's day, you could present a philosophical justification of your ideals, but you didn't have to deal with the modern world. That is, you didn't have to have a really complex conception of what society was about, nor did you have to have a grasp of economics. Mm. I mean, for Plato, he was dealing with a simple city-state, and it was pretty clear what it was about. That is, it was a group of people who were sufficiently numerous to have a real civilization rather than 
the bucolic civilization of a village. They were sufficient to cultivate philosophy. They were sufficient to seek other humane ideals like the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of beauty. And when you formulated a concept of justice, it was pretty obvious how to apply it. That is, you didn't want people to be cheating at market when they weighed their produce. You didn't want people to be telling lies. And as for economics, all you really had to do was to try and avoid that there were too many poor and that were dominated by the rich. And it was pretty obvious how to do that, really. Uh, you had a simple market economy. And if there were too many people for land to be divided, you just sent them away on a colonizing expedition. And I began to realize that moral philosophy had two prongs. One is philosophical analysis that elucidates how reason can defend humane ideals. Mm. And that you had to have a grasp of modern psychology and sociology, and particularly economics. That justifying justice was not enough. For example, as a just person, you might think that it was clear that you should introduce rent controls so that poor people wouldn't have to pay too much rent. And then when you looked at the market situation, you found, well, introducing rent controls meant that rental housing was a bad investment and that a city that was expanding would not have enough rental housing. You found that landlords who were stuck with rent control housing couldn't sell it because it was a bad investment, mm. and they would use every trick in the books to try and turn a profit by not making repairs and not fixing the roof and not fixing the toilet. And you found that, in point of fact, just having a humane concept of justice wasn't enough. You had to look at how the market structured whatever you did in a very complex way. I came to the conclusion, for example, that rent controls are usually a mistake, and you'd do far better to have more money in state housing. But my point is broader than that, that philosophers who are moral philosophers today fight with one arm tied behind their back, that the actual behavior of people is structured by something rather complex called the market. Right. And only if you have a certain grasp of market economics can you make practical proposals as to how to have a, a more just society. So I wasn't upset that I was getting involved in the economics and social science in my work on IQ. You might ask how market economics affected my examination of IQ, but I did a market analysis of the black marriage market. That is, I showed that many of the problems of black women were dictated by the fact that there were just too few black men to be viable husbands. And that they were in a position where for every 100 women of marriageable age, there'd be only 57 black viable husbands. And due to bias, they were restricted to black men pretty much for their spouses. And 43% of black women were going to either have to go childless or to have a child by a black man who was a non-viable husband. So I began to see that not only economics, but also a fine-grained analysis of sociology was necessary to be an active moral philosopher who could do more than 
uh, say, oh, I can defend egalitarian concepts of justice, but I have no real suggestions as to how there will be a more just society. And I also came into contact with Charles Murray's book, The Bell Curve. Mm. And in it, he says that thanks to the market, any steps we take towards equality will be counterproductive. That is, he says, look, if you equalize environments, that means that genes dictate talent. And if you remove privilege, that means all the good genes go to the top, and the working class becomes merely a genetic dump. And is this what humane ideals mean in practice? You have a stratified society according to genetic quality with virtually no social mobility. So you can see that although I started as a moral philosopher, and my book, How to Defend Humane Ideals, which came out in 2007, is a book that deals with the problem of ethical skepticism, you can see why it also has a large amount of social science content. Right. I mean, today we have the complex task of painting a picture as to what a humane society and a market economy would really look like. And we have to do a very careful analysis of the effects it has on human psychology. So you're, um, you mentioned that uh, moral philosophers have one hand tied behind their back, and it's because If they, they want to actually say what a just society would look like would look in like. Plato's Republic, right. he doesn't just justify his concept of justice. He actually paints a picture of what a just society would look like. And in his day, you could do that without a complex sociology and economics. So do you think it's because um, in our more contemporary um, uh, arts programs that each individual discipline, I, that being psychology, philosophy, sociology, are siloed and there isn't as much uh, cross-disciplinary communication? Yes, I feel I published a book some years ago uh, on the subject of how you should have, how to improve your mind, it was called. And in it, I pointed out that in order to really cope with the modern world, and the modern world is certainly market dominated, right. you had to have certain intellectual tools aside from a good heart. And these intellectual tools had to be a grasp of economics, a grasp of how international politics works, a grasp of what a humane society would look like and why it wouldn't self-destruct. It was interesting, you know, with all of Murray's analysis of how inevitably the abolition of privilege and the uh, abolition of unequal environments was going to take us towards a class stratified meritocracy according to genes, he had never looked at the international data because the implication would be that those societies that had gone furthest down the road to equality would show all of the attributes of meritocracy. Well, this turned out not to be true. The Scandinavian societies have gone far further to trying to abolish privilege and to try to equalize environments than any further uh, than the others have, and they actually have a maximum of social mobility. And they have a situation where people no longer run their lives in terms of shaking the last dollar out of the money tree. That is, the more affluent the society gets, the more people can live their own lives and 
in uh, in Norway, if you ask people, would they exchange a job they enjoy for another that was paid twice as much? An overwhelming majority say no. In America, an overwhelming majority say yes. Mm. But as Americans have no welfare state, they're insecure. The only way they can get security is by amassing their own private fortune. Right. So you found when you looked at international data, humane ideals didn't self-destruct, that they actually produced a society in which far more people were capable of ignoring money in order to follow their own star. The the tax the t- very taxing um, uh, endeavor that you're suggesting that many of us you know in in non welfare states um, have to have to go through in order to have a more complete understanding of of moral philosophy or what a just society is seems like a very tall order um, for the average. Well, the it's a tall order, but you know what does it involve? It involves a little cross cultural knowledge. Mm of looking beyond New Zealand or looking beyond America and looking how other societies have tried to promote equality and finding out just why this hasn't led to counterproductive consequences. Now, of course, you also want to be a moral person in terms of approving what wars your country fights. Now, that, of course, involves a kindergarten knowledge of international relations but it also involves wide reading so that you understand that other people are different than you are and have a different history. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wrote the Torchlight books that lead you to wide reading that will show you that you can't just go into a country like Iraq and nation build. You know, if, if it were easy to nation build there, the Iraqis would have caught the, the solution to it long ago. And the, you find out that they're they're not just slightly primitive Americans, that they're divided along tribal and national lines that render nation-building impossible. St. Thomas once said that you could in, should get involved in a civil war only if you had reason to think it was short, yeah. that the cost of life would be minimal, and that a better regime would result. Right. Well, none of those questions were asked before we went into Iraq. Right. And you don't have to – I often use history as an example. You're probably familiar with the Thirty Years' War in Germany. Yes. Well, you know, in 1618 to 1648, half the population of Germany was killed by Catholic opposing Protestants. Mm-hmm. And imagine that the Sultan of Turkey was a benevolent person and thought, why don't I send a Turkish army into Germany and teach these Christians to love one another and nation build? Well, we can all see how insane that would have been mm-hmm. to send an alien army in there to teach Catholics to love Protestants and vice versa and to teach them how to bury their differences. And it's exactly what America did with Iraq. You know, she sent an alien army in that had no knowledge of the area, no knowledge of what divided it, no knowledge of uh, its history or its literature. And if they had only known a little about the Thirty Years' War, they'd have said, this is really insane. (laughs) This this can't work. So you do have to have, other than philosophical sophistication, which is necessary, you do have to have a certain knowledge. But you know, at one time, 
educated people read widely. Today, there has been a terrible diminution of the amount of literature and serious history that college graduates read. Mm -hmm. If you had told me 60 years ago that we would double the number of college graduates, and yet the average adult would read less serious literature and history than they did before, I would have thought that was bizarre, but it's true. I mean, only about 36% of American males ever read a serious book. Right. Why do you think that is the case? Do you think it's because... It's partially a case because of two things. First, the growth of materialism. I mean, I know people who say to me, why should I read literature? You know, I'm doing well, I'm making money. And secondly, and far more important, I think, is the lure of the modern visual world. That people who used to read a book or uh, read some history immediately plug in to uh, a whole series of visual entertainments. Right. And these provide two things. First, they don't leave enough time for reading. Mm -hmm. And secondly, they accustom you to expect a thrill about every minute. Immediate gratification. And of course, that's right, as you do. You expect a rape or a murder or a car chase. Well, Dickens can't compete with that. I mean, there's plenty of drama on Dickens, but it's spread over 400 pages, and he has to build up character and the scene very right. carefully. He can't just produce a fix every 60 seconds. So I think it's partially a matter of not just that the modern visual world makes it more difficult for people to find the time to read. It also inculcates a habitual approach to that affects reading badly. Mm. I mean, I do, I, I write books about how what books are useful, and I did find one book that I think is cap copied on the modern world. Every page has virtually a dramatic incident. But of course, the author can't really sustain that over 300 pages. Right. <laughs> and in the long run, it makes for a very unsatisfactory book. If if we could segue to your uh, to the Flynn effect, um, it, I was wondering if you could give our listeners a, um, a an explanation of just what it is and how revolutionary the idea um, is for modern psychology. Yes, and I also want to give an indication of how revolutionary it's not. Okay. The Flynn effect is that due to social forces in the 20th century, in advanced nations that people have adopted a new way of thinking, and IQ tests pick that up with great sensitivity. That is, if you look at people in America in 1900, they were very much rooted in the concrete world and their practical concerns. And they weren't much interested in abstract reasoning of the sort that's important on IQ tests. And, of course, things changed. For the one thing, the nature of work changed, that people, rather than just doing factory work or subsistence farming, a far greater percentage of them were drawn into the white-collar classes, and a far greater percentage of them were drawn into the professional classes. And for these things, formal education was a prerequisite. Mm, right. Most Americans dropped out of school at the fourth grade in 1900 or the sixth grade at the latest. Uh, they saw no point in it. They didn't need that. All they needed was basic numeracy if they needed that at all. 
And as the 20th century went on, a number of things happened. The world of work began to demand more educated and abstract skills. The world of leisure, people had more leisure, and they wanted in that leisure. You know, everything you do on the Internet isn't mind-sapping. Some of the puzzles the Internet poses are, are fairly interesting conceptual problems. Uh, you'll note today, for example, that compared to 50 years ago, most programs have five or six plot lines rather than the simple plot lines of uh, 1970, let's say. Right. So you entertainment became something that was more common and made more conceptual demands. Professional and middle-class work developed and made more demands. All of this meant that if you wanted your children to do well, they had better have the formal thinking of uh, formal education. And you may ask, why were IQ tests really sensitive in picking up this change from a pragmatic mentality to a mentality that emphasized abstractions and logic? Mm. You know, if you ask the kid in 1900 what dogs and rabbits have in common, which is what similarities does, it asks for similarities. Right. He would have said, well, you use dogs to hunt rabbits. He would never have said they're both mammals. Right. <laughs> and this meant an enormous change in our thinking. It means a change in our thinking not only about the external world, but even about ethics. My father was not a man who had great racial prejudice. Uh, he was, his bias against the English was so strong that he didn't have much left for black. But he did have the Missouri prejudice that blacks were mildly inferior. And, uh, you know, we didn't worry much about injustice. And my brother and I would say to him, what if you woke up tomorrow morning and you were black? And he would say, that's the craziest thing you've ever said. How do you, who has that ever happened to? Right. Well, of course, what you were trying to get him to do was universalize his moral principles. Right to say, to take the hypothetical seriously, and to say, you can imagine such a situation, would you still believe that even though you're the person you are, that just because you have black skin, you deserve to be treated as a second-rate citizen? But you see, that involves a certain detachment right. from concrete reality, mm -hmm. and a certain willingness to use abstractions and to use logic on those abstractions. So the thing we call the Flynn effect, this ability to take the hypothetical seriously and not just immerse oneself in the concrete world of existence, this ability to use logic on abstractions, not only suits people today for the employment they need and not only suits them for education, it even improves their moral reason. Hmm. But remember... The mere fact that young people today are less biased in terms of race and gender than they used to be is to some degree counterbalanced by the fact of growing ignorance of the world through lack of reading and lack of history. Right. That is, at a, a certain point, trying to universalize your moral principles falls unless you have knowledge. I'm sure many of these young people at universities who try and keep anyone from saying anything they consider racist, I'm sure their hearts are in the right place. 
but about the only way in which they try to make their racist principles viable is to say, shut anyone up who says a bad thing that people would resent. Well, that, of course, is an incredibly ignorant way of trying to run a university. That is, to run anyone out of town who says something that somebody resents. Right. Or again, they may be in favor of rent controls because they haven't thought through uh, market economics sufficiently. So on the one hand, you have IQ rising, and people are more willing to take abstractions seriously, more willing to classify, more willing to use logic. On the other hand, the other side of being a mature moral agent has been going down as people become less and less, less, and less knowledgeable through less reading of history and literature. So the two can tend to cancel out. And how do you see this story ending, then, um, if this current trend continues? It's so hard to tell because looming over everything, of course, is the climate. Right. You know, when we look at the next century, you would think, well, due to the spread of tertiary education. But tertiary education has spread about as far as it can spread unless everyone is to spend their entire life at university. So it seems to be running a bit out of gas. But you'd say these people are bright enough. They should have the tools for analyzing the modern world, but they don't. Their hearts are in the right place. They are less tempted by sexism and racism. But they are endlessly able to be manipulated by the media and the politicians in terms of fighting crazy wars, in terms of seeking simplistic solutions to their problems, the notion that the only reason they aren't well off is that America hasn't been tough enough in negotiating trade deals. Uh, they can be prejudiced against the welfare straight by propaganda without ever actually looking at what the... There's no society, you know, that developed socialized medicine that has ever been tempted to give it up. Right, <laughs> you <know? right>. yeah. <laughs> you know, they fight like crazy to keep it against the Tories. And yet, you know, you find Americans parroting this stuff about death squads. And uh, you, you find them cynics. They'll often say, I don't believe the media. I don't believe the government. But I don't know what would happen if we took all of our troops out of the Middle East. Uh, I, I can't visualize what things would look like. If they'd only read Howard Fisk's book, The Great Crusade for Western Civilization, they would have found that every Western intervention in the Middle East has just killed more people and not solved anything. So while they're complete cynics, they don't withhold their assent from expeditions such as we have in the Middle East. Right. And as I say, as they become increasingly preoccupied, with developing problems like uh, coastal flooding from climate, you would hope they would have the sense to see that when you have severe coastal flooding from climate, you have to have a national housing policy that gives everyone a decent residence. You know, here you're going to have millions of people displaced. Are they just be going to be thrown on the market economy? So you would like to be optimistic to some degree. But on the other hand, you realize that the forces that try to prevent people from critical intelligence are 
very powerful. And you see that universities are doing less and less of their job in teaching people to have more than vocational skills. Right. So I think it's very difficult. Uh, I'm not much interested in whether IQ keeps going up in the 20th century. I think most people today have absorbed most of the benefits that lie behind IQ rises. But I have grave doubts about whether uh, the fund of general information and the level of knowledgeability will increase in the 20th century. And without that, you're fighting with one arm tied behind your back. So how do you solve for this, then? The, um, we need to instill a, a culture where um, facts and empirical evidence are once again sought. Because what I, what I see is, uh, especially in the, in the, the arts community at, at the universities, the, the humanities, there seems to be an, an, an almost insulating um, attitude that things that are, especially in the, the newer subjects um, uh, that employ critical theory, um, use a, a moral, you know, a, a moral ideology that, that tends to um, discount or um, anything, any empirical evidence that, that acts the contrary or proves the contrary or at least goes against what they believe. As being well, remember that some courses that call themselves critical theory mm. are systematically attempting to undermine critical right. intelligence. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, I mean, the things that would be good would be that slowly postmodernism would die in universities, and I think it's on the wane because you can't do anything with it except prove that you're more of a postmodernist than the next person. But uh, you would have to offer, I think, a minor in critical thinking that was available at all universities that essentially used literature and used history and used social science and used economics to actually think critically about current problems. You can always say, well, someone who has taken history and someone who's taken English and someone who has taken this or that will develop that skill. But that skill has to be taught. I mean, you can read, a, you can be aware of a cursory history of Western civilization and a look at modern European literature and even have dabbled a bit in the social sciences. And yet you've not put it together in terms of tools that allow you to have a critical perspective. Mm. But there are other things the government could do. It could say, there's a national crisis in New Zealand in terms of reading. Uh, we are going to give every adult in New Zealand a subsidy redeemable if they take it out in serious books. We're going to have at every university a yearly examination to make sure that students have left enough time to read literature, and this will be examined after the exams are over. And if you qualify every year, you get a, a, a special designation on your diploma. That is, your diploma will have at the bottom, you know, uh, this student seems fully literate, uh, having passed this exam for four years running. Uh, so a lot of things could be done. I mean, we should recognize the uh, fact that literacy is in uh, retrograde, that people are reading less that this is something that has to be counteracted at the highest level. 
right. at the highest level in terms of promoting critical intelligence at university, but also in terms of giving people in high school more incentives to read, uh, giving them at university incentives to read. And uh, there has to be a sense of awareness to get this going. I'm not sure how to do it. I keep writing books that try to make people more aware of it. What do you think the the appropriate age is for developing these tools? Because for developing a love of reading very young, very you young. find that many young people of 10, 11, 12, 13, or 14 read widely and then stop. Yeah. They enter the new visual world. They become interested in the opposite sex. Their time becomes too full to read. I mean, when I encounter people who say they don't have time to read, I say, an hour before you go to bed, why don't you settle yourself down by reading some good literature? If you read an hour a night for six nights a week, you'll get through an awful lot of interesting books. Yeah. But uh, the, the, the problem arises in uh, about the ages of 14 or 15. Now, some schools give a torchlight certificate. That is, they tell the stu students, if you only use your wide reading requirement to read some of the books on the torchlight list, you'll get a certificate. And I sign the certificates. But that, of course, is just a couple of schools in the local area. Uh, but... There are English teachers who do try to promote uh, reading under the wide reading requirement, but not very successfully. At university, the amount of time students spend reading serious literature and history diminishes with every year they're at university. And as I say, you could try and reverse that uh, by having your diploma have on it a special stamp, you know, a big L with flourishes saying, this person is literate in terms of the literature of Western civilization that they earn each year. And uh, you could certainly subsidize the purchase of books among adults. I mean, not in a dictatorial way, but in order to redeem the subsidy, they'd have to do better than take it out on magazines. Currently, then, in, in universities, you don't think that... Um you know, students are reading reading enough. Um, I, I'm sure that there are quite a few students. In my that... classes, every year, I say to them on occasion, "What are who are your favorite authors? And 60 years ago, people would say Jane Austen, George Orwell. When you pose that class to a, a group of 60 today, often there's a dead silence. And it turns out they have no favorite authors except perhaps... You know, the Lord of the Rings or uh, the Potter series. Right. They just don't. And uh, that has been increasing over the 60 years that I've lectured. And I used to illustrate philosophical topics by making reference to literature. And then I found I was having to explain the literary reference. So it was really a waste of time, Right. you know, to explain the dilemmas of thinking that ethics is just law and order, you'd refer to Les Miserables, and then you found there was no one in class who'd ever read <laughs> Les Miserables. Yeah. So you'd have to say, now, this is why I refer to this book to make this point. And uh, you, you had to educate them in literature as well as philosophy. But there, uh, in America, we have overwhelming data of the decline of reading and uh, literature and serious historical material. In New Zealand, there's no systematic data, but 
my own experience as a lecturer shows that year after year after year, there are fewer students who will say spontaneously, well, you know, my favorite author is Orwell, or my favorite author is Remark, or my favorite author is Aldous Huxley. They, they have nothing to offer. They've given up. So you said that earlier that the postmodernist um, uh, hold on the universities is waning. Um, I, I, I think to some degree to it some is. Degree. It's certainly waning in America, yeah. and we usually follow America about 10 or 15 years later. Hmm. Uh, more and more people look at the journals of postmodernism, and they look at the teachings of postmodernists, and what does it come down to? Namely, everything has a historical and social context, as if that were some new discovery. <laughs> and, of course, the jump they make is that, therefore, everything is subjective, which, of course, is absurd. Uh, you know, the, the notion that everything is subjective, they don't take that attitude to their own publications. Oh, yes. They don't say that my book is subject to an infinite number of interpretations. If you said to them, well, I've read your book and I think it's about the Bobsy twins going to the seashore, they would be very affronted that you had missed its message. Right. Well, if there can be one intelligent interpretation of their books, why can't there be a more intelligent interpretation of history or social science or other things? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you, you can't make an exception. You can't say, well, I abjure the notion that truth exists. However, when I go to court, I would prefer a witness who doesn't tell lies about me. If I want to take a bus, I would prefer an up-to-date bus timetable. If someone reads my book, I'd prefer that they actually understood what I intended it to say. Right. I mean, postmodernism is self-contradictory in practice. It's just a pose. And the problem is that increasingly... As it spread, people began to realize, well, you can't do any economics with this. You can't do any history with it. You can't do any sociology with it. It's all running around saying everything is relative because it's all a matter of opinion. So what do you think is taking its place then, at least in the... Oh, well, I think what's taking its place is that people are reverting more and more to teaching disciplines in a traditional way. Well, that's, that's Unfortunately, they're teaching them to students who are less and less prepared to be educated. Ah, right. Well, it's good to hear that they, the universities, at least in the American sense, and hopefully 10 or 15 years from now, New Zealand... Um, I think are... it'll be like Hegelianism. I mean, Hegel was a great thinker, but he didn't really illuminate philosophy. No. But the, he caught on in England, and there were professors who were Hegelians, and they supervised students who were Hegelians, and so it went. And the postmodernist factory will go on a bit longer because there are professors who take it seriously. And they, but uh, I think eventually the fact that uh, it self-destructs in practice is going to doom it. Well, thank you very much, Um uh, Professor Flynn, that 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 was uh, extremely um, illuminating, and I'm sure our listeners um, learned a great deal uh, uh, from your insight. Um, I'd like to thank you for for, for joining us once again, and um, I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you in our next episode about um, about your book. Well, that's terrific, and I enjoyed talking to you. So, goodbye then. 
If you like this podcast, you can go to www.freespeechcoalition.nz forward slash donate to donate to the cause and to keep this podcast going. You can find our podcasts in uh, in you can find our podcasts in both Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, and probably anywhere.